0: Welcome, everyone, to our next series on the Build and Revitalize podcast. I'm Jason Chaney, Senior Consultant and Due Diligence Discipline Lead with SME, and your host for this series on environmental due diligence. A couple months ago, Dave and I were out having a beverage and waxing poetic on the topic of due care obligations. You can only imagine the crowd that gathered around us. That moment was the birth of this multi-part series. We'll be covering the importance of due diligence prior to property transactions, what to do after acquisition, risks associated with property acquisition, and what happens when things don't go to plan. Today, I'm happy to introduce our guests, Dave Guevara and Arthur Siegel, partners at Taft Law. Dave, thanks for joining us today.
1: Jason, thanks for inviting me.
0: Arthur, I'm
2: glad you could be here. Jason, thanks so much for inviting me.
0: Dave and Arthur are renowned experts in the environmental law field. Arthur is an expert in the state of Michigan and has assisted Michigan's Eagle in drafting environmental policy. And Dave focuses on circle law and using insurance to recover costs associated with environmental releases. I'm also joined today by Brett Stunts, SME's senior consultant and financial incentives discipline lead. Hi, hey, Brett.
3: Hey, Jason. Thanks for having me.
0: Today, we're going to focus on the basics. What is environmental liability? Where did it come from? And why due diligence is important? So let's start. What's environmental liability? How did we get here?
1: Jason, this is Dave. That's a great question. So environmental law came into being in the 1970s. The EPA was created in 1970, and between 1970 and 1979, the entire framework of federal environmental law was created. The purpose of these laws was to regulate the use of hazardous substances and petroleum so that hazardous substances would be managed in a way to decrease the probability of a release into the environment. And these laws, Jason, as I said, are regulatory, so they're forward-looking. The purpose, as I said, is to decrease the probability of a release in the future by regulating the use of hazardous substances and petroleum in the present. Then, in 1980... A sea change in environmental law occurred with the enactment of CERCLA, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act. And the reason why it was a sea change, Jason, is because CERCLA is an enforcement statute. So rather than regulating the use of hazardous substances CERCLA makes parties liable to clean up contamination. Its purpose is to clean up past and future contamination, and liability under CERCLA is draconian. And by that, I mean it is harsh, it's severe, it's extreme. And the reason why, Jason, is because CERCLA's liability scheme is one, it's wide in scope. That is, it ensnares parties who had nothing whatsoever to do with the release of the contamination. Two, it's strict, which means it's not based on fault. And three, it's joint and several, which means that any individual PRP can be 100% liable for the cost of cleaning up the contamination. So the liability of CERCLA, Jason, as you may know, is broken down into four parties. There are four parties who are liable under CERCLA. And I'll talk about just two of those real quickly. And the first is the current owner or operator of any site or any facility where hazardous substances have come to be deposited. And the second category is any person who at the time of disposal of any hazardous substances owned or operated the facility at which such hazardous substances have come to be disposed. So CERCLA's liability, as I said, is wide in scope. It captures a wide set of parties. And liability under CERCLA, not only is it is it wide in scope, as I discussed, but it's also strict. And what that means, Jason, is that circular liability does not require proof of negligence or wrongdoing. That is, circular liability is not dependent upon any showing of causation or any showing of fault. And to make matters worse, for PRPs, it is also joint in several, and as I said, what that means is... That is, each party is liable independent of other parties for the full extent of environmental response costs. So, liability uh, under CERCLA is draconian. Now, Jason, as you might imagine, CERCLA's broad liability scheme creates significant barriers to redevelopment because. Parties can be held liable for the entire cost of cleanup even if they purchased the property after the contamination occurred or were otherwise innocent parties.
3: Well, draconian liability sounds awful. Sounds like something I'd like to avoid. Are there ways or what ways uh, can people operate so that they have exemptions or avoid liability?
1: I'll talk about one, Brett. That's a great question, and Arthur may talk about others. But because liability under CERCLA is so draconian, it had an unintended consequence, and that was the creation and proliferation of brownfields. Once people became aware of the potential liability to which they can be exposed, they ceased purchasing and developing properties that were contaminated, thereby creating brownfields. So in 2002, Congress recognized the unintended consequence of CERCLA, namely the creation and proliferation of brownfields, and sought to address that unintended consequence through the enactment of the bona fide prospective purchaser defense. So if you qualify for the bona fide prospective purchaser defense, you are exempt from circular liability. So the question is, how do you qualify as a bona fide prospective purchaser and to qualify, a purchaser must acquire the property in question after January eleventh, two 2002 and the purchaser must satisfy eight criteria. Now, I won't discuss the eight criteria now, but each of the elements are exceptionally important and I know that we'll be addressing some of those in episode two.
3: So, this might be a little off script, but If CERCLA was 1980 and BFPP was 2002, does that mean that, you know, over that time period, there are these brownfields that were created because of avoidance of, you know, that there was this strict liability scheme where people would be joint and severally liable for properties they went and bought without a defense. And then also for maybe those not well-informed or just going through the process, then a lot of people waded into liability over those two decades. So did you have, in 2002, Congress comes in, does the FPP event, does that look backwards? Do you have a bunch of people stuck with liability?
1: It's not retroactive, right? So you would be, because you wouldn't be able to satisfy the eight elements, right? Okay. So yeah, it, it, there you would have a substantial set of property owners who are exposed to liability and would not be able to avail themselves of the bona fide prospective purchaser defense but there are other defenses.
2: Absolutely. Everything David said I agree with, but what's interesting is is that a lot of business was driven by the lending market. Lenders realizing that they may have to foreclose on properties, they didn't want to have the environmental liabilities either. They didn't want to have a piece of property that had no value. And so what you would see is purchasers saying, well, I don't want to buy this piece of property because I might get stuck with this liability. I probably would get stuck with the liability. Whether or not I could collect from other liable parties was a different question. But then the lenders were saying, well, we're not going to make a loan on this because we don't want to have a piece of property that is valueless. Or if we foreclose, we might get stuck with that liability ourselves. So absolutely, Dave is right. There was there was a huge drive from basically 1980 to at least the mid-1990s when things started changing at the state level, uh, particularly here in Michigan, but, but in other places as well, where developers and developments were being driven into so-called greenfield sites because nobody wanted to get near you know, a brownfield. It was like you know, touching the third rail. You touch it and you die, or at least you could, and nobody wanted to take that risk. It was a lot easier to just say, we'll develop out in old farm fields then, which may have their own issues, Uh, than we would in an urban area or in a formerly industrial area. A lot of that has changed with the the state level changes and then the enactment of the bona fide purchaser protection that Dave mentioned.
0: So, Arthur, I think, you know, we all know that the first step in this is the phase one. Why is that so important? Like, why do we have to do the phase one and, and the steps
2: afterwards? Well, what the law prescribed was that if you had, and this is even before the advent of the the bona fide purchaser uh, defense, that if you did due diligence, if you made all appropriate inquiry, that's sort of the magic phrase, all appropriate inquiry, and did not find evidence of contamination, then you were not liable for that contamination. So one of the defenses that Dave mentioned was, you know, or talked about other defenses, one would be you went and you looked, you did your all appropriate inquiry, and you didn't find any evidence of contamination. Well, there may still be contamination. Doing the all appropriate inquiry does not necessarily mean you're going to find every possible problem. So if you did that inquiry and didn't find it, didn't find a problem, you could buy your property. You would not be held liable for it. You may have a piece of property that you couldn't sell or couldn't use because there was contamination on it. But at least you wouldn't be ob- obligated to pay for its cleanup. And that dates back again to 1980 and the, the original enactment of the, of the law. So people would go out and do what was all appropriate inquiry. And that evolved over time. I mean, when it was first adopted, people didn't really know what that meant. And it has evolved. There are standard-setting agencies that have developed standards. The federal government in regulations has adopted those standards. So it's now it's fairly clear what steps you have to go through. And for most people, they they're, they don't have that much experience with this. What they do have experience with is buying a home. And so I always liken it to that. You know, you call your home inspector when you when you put an offer on a house. You go out and you do your home inspector your inspection. You pay a guy to come out and take a look. He looks around. He doesn't do everything that would be involved in a phase one. Uh, but comparatively, if he sees a potential problem, gee, there's some issues with the foundation. Looks like there's some water staining or there's some cracking, or I see something with the chimney. Well, he's not going to go up and do a, a in-depth inva- evaluation. He's going to tell you, and then you have to decide whether or not you want to pay to bring out a contractor to look at that. Gee, the foundation of the house is cracked. It's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars to fix it. Or there's a problem with the roof, and you're going to have to pay tens of thousands of dollars to fix that. Well, the all appropriate inquiry process is like that. The phase one is sort of the home inspector. People such as yourselves come out and do an evaluation. Now, again, that evaluation is more in depth than a home inspection. But just like a home inspection, you look at the property. You look for signs of problems. You look for dead vegetation in an area where everything else is green and growing. Maybe that's a sign something was dumped there. You look for a variety of other, you know, visible signs. Is there Uh, you know, indication that there was a tank on the ground or that is there a vent pipe by the property that might have indicated an underground storage tank that was used for fuel or something else. And there's a variety of steps. That's just one of them. The rest of them include largely looking at the surrounding area and what's available in terms of governmental information. You know, what do we know about the property and its neighbors? Are they in trouble with the law? Have they had spills? Did they have tanks? All of those sorts of questions. And then the last and in many cases the most important is look at the history of the property because a lot of properties have histories that aren't apparent just looking at a piece of property and i swear it was sme that showed me this this and i i I wish i'd kept a of course back then we didn't have uh, camera phones i wish i had taken pictures of this but i think it was sme that showed me very early in my career slides of a investigation looking at a very green field Uh, You know, you know, look like a pasture and they were putting a drill rig in and drill drilling holes uh, because they had and I was somebody from SME who had done their homework and looked at the history and said something was buried here. Well, they put a a drill rig out, they drilled down, pulled the drill out of the ground. And what they had hit was a buried drum, I think, of pretty much pure phosphorus. And for the chemistry people in the room, for the non-chemistry people in the room, more appropriately or those listening, Phosphorus ignites on contact with air. So when they pulled the drill bit out of the hole, fire shot out of the hole. That made an impression (laughs) on me. I mean, it's gotta be some 30 years later, I remember that. I remember that image very vividly. So the answer, to get back to your question, phase one is the first step in the process to trying to figure out whether or not there might be a problem out there. And it's the first step in the process that's required as part of that all appropriate inquiry. And pretty much throughout the country, every state, if the state has its own statute, they require that as part of their liability protection, whether it's parallel to the federal, parallel to the former federal program uh, before the bona fide purchaser program, or if they have something different like, say, Michigan or Ohio both do. The phase one is the first step in the process. If the phase one flags an issue, then you've got to look at and going on to the next step, which would be a phase two, which is the more invasive You know, bringing in the contractor to put a hole in the ground or sample the groundwater, test the soil, things like that.
0: Okay. Um, So you mentioned, and Dave did as well, that, you know, one of the benefits of doing the phase one, the phase two, all appropriate inquiry is it protects that purchaser from liability for that material that's in the ground. What are some of the limitations of the BFPP
1: defense So the phase one in and of itself isn't sufficient for purposes of establishing the bona fide prospective purchaser defense. So it's one of performing all appropriate inquiry which can be accomplished through an ASTM compliant phase one is one element. It's a threshold requirement, a pre-acquisition duty that necessarily must be performed, but it's not sufficient. It's a necessary but not sufficient condition. So uh, you need to... uh, perform and satisfy the other seven elements in order to be able to assert the defense. But it's critically important, of course, because as Arthur was saying, it's a desktop review of documents related to the property as well as a site reconnaissance, which identifies recognized environmental conditions, which will then be investigated through the performance of a phase one. So so you want to ensure that you have an ASTM compliant phase one, and you want to make sure that that uh, phase one is adequate for the the purpose of, of uh, identifying recognized environmental conditions so that you can do your phase two and further investigate those in an effort to identify any contaminant impacts to the property.
2: But the good news is that if you do a phase one and the phase one concludes there are no recognized environmental conditions, RECs or RECs as we call them, you're pretty much done at that point. There's not much more for you to, to do because you fall into, you can't qualify, as Dave said, for the the bona fide purchaser protection, but you do qualify for the protection that was there back in 1980 when the statute was passed, which is generally referred to as the due diligence safe harbor. And if you've done that, then you're protected. You can stop. So, and I'm sure you've had it. I know I've had it. Clients say, well, I got a a quote unquote clean phase one, which drives us all crazy because that's not really the, the appropriate phrasing, but I got to clean phase one. So when do I do my phase two? It's like, no, 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 you don't have to do a phase two now. If your phase one doesn't recommend it, if they didn't identify any recognized environmental conditions, you're done.
3: Sticking with the home inspection analogy. um, So if the home inspector is giving you all appropriate inquiry for circular concerns, what else is out there that isn't circular based. So a lot of the times I think a developer will say, well, I have an environmental, I have a phase one. I'm good, right? Are there other things that are environmental in nature that are outside of the phase
2: one? There absolutely are. There absolutely are. And I I would say it falls into sort of a couple of categories. One is compliance related. And as as Dave said, the law started out in the seventies. It was pretty much compliance driven. You have to do this. You shall not do that. Those sorts of things. Those things are generally not covered in a phase one or a phase two, for that matter. Uh, Sometimes they'll be touched on. Somebody, you know, like yourself will be out in the field and you'll say, oh, I, you know, I, I saw some drums and they weren't properly labeled. Well, that's not really appropriate as part of a phase one, but it's appreciated. And, you know, it's nice when the consultants go the extra mile and flag those issues. But, you know, there are a variety of compliance related issues depending on the business. It's most important when a client of ours or anybody else's is looking to buy perhaps an operating business. You're buying an operating business, you can't just stop with the phase one. The phase one assesses what's in the ground. It doesn't necessarily assess what's going on inside the plant building, inside the operations. Are they doing it are they doing it correctly? Are they maintaining the appropriate records? Are things properly labeled? Are they disposing of stuff properly? I mean, it's possible that in a phase one, you would you would notice if somebody, and th- this made the papers here. I don't know if it made the papers outside of Michigan. There's a uh, a situation uh, off of I-696, one of the major freeways, sort of on the near east side of, of Detroit, where a guy was basically dumping pretty nasty wastes into effectively his basement. And eventually it ate through the floor of the basement and wound up leaking out onto the Freeway, people saw this green ooze coming out onto I-696, like from their cars, and they saw that. Well, a phase one would pick, that should pick that up. Would hope it would pick that up. Um, but if the guy was sending it out to a farm somewhere to be dumped, phase one's not going to pick that up. It may not be as important if you're doing a asset deal versus a stock deal. But certainly, we still see clients who are buying the company, buying the not just the business, but actually the stock of the company that they're acquiring. In those situations, they're stepping into the shoes of that, uh, that company. They're stepping into their liabilities. So looking at compliance is exceptionally important. The other thing that doesn't really get covered in a typical phase one, shall we say, unless you ask, is a variety of what I would call development-related issues. And it 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 falls into a, a variety of different categories, but really in my mind, it sort of falls into two. If you're looking at undeveloped land, are there wetlands? Are there endangered species? Are there, you know, trees that are protected by a tree ordinance, any of those sorts of things? Are there archeological sites? And we've seen that happen where, you know, if you're looking at an undeveloped piece of land that's, you know, in Texas or Arizona or someplace uh, there's, you know, and I'm sure it's true in Michigan as well and, and elsewhere around the Midwest, you know, were there native, native burial sites? Were there uh, towards the East Coast? You've got to worry about truly historic uh, sites from, you know, settling, uh, the American settlers. So you've got to deal with those pretty much everywhere that you're looking if you're going to be, as I said, generally an undeveloped site. The other piece I would say is, is when you're looking at a developed site, you've got to look at things like perhaps are, is there asbestos in the building? Is there lead paint? Is there a radon concern? It's not truly environmental, but uh, if you're looking in an area prone to earthquakes, perhaps along the West Coast, do you have to worry about seismic risk? Um, certainly these days, now, now more and more, particularly along both coasts, do you have to worry about uh, climate change risks? None of those things are included in a, in a typical phase one. All of those are environmentally driven or environmentally related, and all of them need to be considered depending on the nature of the transaction. Dave, do you agree?
1: Oh, absolutely. And In addition to that, there's an emergent contaminant issue, right? That's not going to be addressed in your phase one either, so PFAS. Now, it should be addressed as a business environmental risk, but there are a whole host of issues, uh, just as the one Arthur discussed, and emergent contaminants that aren't going to be addressed in your phase one. So, it's a necessary condition for several purposes, primarily for uh, establishing the bona fide prospective purchaser defense. But as I said, it's not sufficient. So it
0: was mentioned earlier that a lot of the, the due diligence starts with the lending institutions, right? So a, a developer may not know they're supposed to be doing this until their bank says, hey, you need to go do a phase one or we've hired somebody to do a phase one. I see a lot of problems with that. Um, what have you guys seen? Where do you see clients struggle your clients, our clients, struggle with this, like because they're somebody's telling them to go do this, they're not really sure what they're supposed to be doing how can how can we all the consultants and the attorneys help our clients get through this process easy?
1: An issue that emerges that I see often, and I don't know if Arthur sees this well in this context is a lending institution will require a phase one and the lending institution will be the user of the phase one. So as you said, Jason, oftentimes they'll use their own environmental consultant. Well, that won't be sufficient for establishing the bona fide prospective purchaser defense, for example, for the purchaser. The purchaser itself needs to be the user. And all that means is that it will be providing information to the environmental consultant through the user questionnaire that the environmental consultant will then use in order to assess whether or not there's a recognized environmental condition. So that's that's one issue, that if the buyer isn't aware of the fact that it needs to be the user of the phase one and lets the, the financial institution, the lending institution be the user, they're not that purchaser isn't going to be able to use the phase one for purposes of establishing the bona fide prospective purchaser defense.
2: Absolutely. And I guess I'd go even one step further back in the process. We've seen certainly still, even to this day, there are people out there who are buying properties for cash, and not or do or on a land contract, and not going to a lender, and they don't know, you know, what they're obligated to do, and if they don't have a lender involved, that's making them, oftentimes, they just think they don't need to do it. One other point I wanted to raise, and going back to to, to your question about, um, I think it was Brett's question about what else isn't included. There's something really important that that I, I want to bring up. A lot of times people will think oh i did a phase 1 and i did a phase 2 and maybe i've gotten i qualify for the bona fide purchaser protection or i qualify under Michigan's program or Ohio's program or, or some other state's program and that's great and fine and well and good but there are other environmental statutes out there also that need to be taken into account uh, and people people forget that there you know there's tasca the toxic substances control act that one doesn't seem to come up as often but what I have found, and it it comes up with greater frequency than even somebody at my advanced years of practice uh, would expect, is uh, hazardous waste related issues. And what I mean by that is, is that there's a, a separate statute. There's there's uh, the federal statute is RCRA, Resource Conservation Recovery Act. The states, some states have their own counterparts. Michigan does. Uh, Michigan says Part One Eleven of its environmental code, and Back in the day, a lot of people didn't really understand how that worked, and they correctly at the time erred on the side of caution. And what I mean by that is if you were to treat, store, or dispose of hazardous wastes, which is a, definitely a subset of the kinds of materials we're talking about, you were obligated to register as a treatment, storage, or disposal facility at TSDF. And a lot of people did who maybe upon reflection wouldn't have, shouldn't have, didn't need to. Some of them did need to, and there are exemptions and exceptions for folks who house small amounts of hazardous waste for short periods of time. Uh, I'm talking about people who are holding stuff for longer periods of time, or actually we're doing disposal or treatment on site. A lot of di- a lot a lot more I would say uh, storage than either treatment or disposal, but I've I've seen all three, and a phase one. May note that it should note that, but a lot of times people will look at this and figure, "Oh, clean phase one i 'm done, or phase one, oh, the phase two I can do I can protect myself as a bona fide purchaser, not necessarily if it was if it was regulated under the hazardous waste statutes, it puts you under a completely different set of requirements and obligations, and so you need to be careful about that one as well and i we've seen that come up more and more as sites have been getting cleaned up, frankly what's left behind is a lot of these former TSDF sites and not everybody understands it and c- certainly I would say I mean you know the folks at our firm they get this they understand that risk but the individual practitioners to go back to your question that's what triggered it for me if somebody's out there who's got you know a, a lawyer who does real estate and traffic tickets and divorce and they do you know all all of the you know they try to do all of it and they're not a specialist in this area and i've seen this happen I would say more times than I care to, to recount, they may not recognize the difference in what the risk is because you're under a different set of rules. Looks the same, sounds the same, but the protections are not there.
3: Yeah, consultants too, really. I, I can sympathize with trying to understand whether substances or processes are regulated by RICRA or not. It's not apparently straightforward, easily straightforward. And I think there is a lot of expertise that goes into it and seemingly a lot of legal
2: nuance. Absolutely, no question about it.
1: And Arthur raises an important point. Remember, we were talking about the bona fide prospective purchaser defense vis-a-vis Circla. So it's not a panacea. What it does is it exempts you from liability under the enforcement statute that we were talking about Circla. But if you're a you know permit A facility under RICRA, it's irrelevant. So, but your phase one. An ASTM compliant phase one should identify whether or not the facility is a RICRA facility.
2: But you got to know what that means, what the significance of that is. If you don't know that, you could, you could be walking into a trap.
1: And, and that's why you need a sophisticated environmental consultant and hopefully in partnership with, with a, a, you know, an, an attorney who can properly review the phase one and advise the client.
3: And what if that didn't happen. So what are the What ha, you know? What happens in a project where, or a property, or a, a process where there was a phase one that didn't flag the things that it was supposed to, or some of the things, or a phase two missed some things? What What do you see there? Well,
2: I'm going to answer maybe a slightly different question than the one you've asked, but I'll I'll try to answer the one that you asked as well. Sometimes you'll see that it's flagged, and somebody doesn't know what that means, doesn't understand the significance of it that's a major problem because the client may proceed assuming that they're protected and they're not and as a, and then all of a sudden they've got the state of Michigan the state of Ohio the state of Indiana the state of Illinois breathing down their neck saying excuse me but you thought you were you were fine and well and good but now you have to spend a lot of money fixing this problem that you didn't create it actually harkens back to the the old days before 2002, before the bona fide purchaser protection, where sometimes people would buy a piece of property. And I mean, I, I've heard it. I'm sure you've heard it too, Dave, where you'd hear somebody say, I even heard my colleagues say this, but the person didn't cause the problem. They didn't do anything wrong. Why do they have to pay? Because Circla is not necessarily about fault. It certainly is about fault in that if you cause the contamination, you're responsible for it. But it's not only about fault. It's also about status. And as you said, it's, the liability is strict joint and several it's not about trying to apportion fault so to go back to the question that you asked if well bluntly if somebody misses and it could be somebody sitting in your in your seat in your shoes or it could be somebody in our shoes or both who misses that issue who, who you know they just for whatever reason don't catch it or they don't think it was significant a, it's a real problem for the client. It's a real problem for the purchaser of the property because it is exceptionally likely that at some point the state or the federal government is going to come out and say, you have an obligation you didn't think you have, and now you've got to address it. You know, you may have thought that the only thing we haven't gotten to the issue of due care, we're going to, but you may think you only have an obligation to sort of maintain due care. Oh, no, no. You've got to clean up this mess fully, completely, 100%. And that's, that's a gigantic problem where does that take you next? It takes you, frankly, you know, the, the, the person who gets that phone call or gets that letter, gets that knock at the door is going to turn around and look at his consultant and possibly his lawyer and say, why didn't you, why didn't you catch this? Why didn't you protect me from this? That's all the more reason, as as Dave said, that you want a, a, a sophisticated, competent, environmental consultant to be doing this work. And you want a sophisticated, competent, environmental lawyer to be looking over their shoulder to make sure that Nobody misses anything. Two sets of eyes are always better than one, and so I mean, quite candidly, and I haven't had this happen, but it certainly could happen. That the question would be: Remember that contract we signed when we hired you, where you said uh, you would carry the appropriate insurance? Now's the time to notify your insurance carrier consultant because you missed it. You blew it. Not a, not a happy answer, but it's the answer that I've got, and a problem that if you're a purchaser of property, you want to avoid. I mean, they don't want they don't want to pick a fight. I mean. And I've seen this happen where you have a, a neighboring source of contamination that's migrating onto a piece of property. Nobody wants to buy a fight with their neighbor. Nobody wants to buy a fight with their consultant or with their lawyer. You know, most, most deal folks, most business people want to do their, their project. They want to buy the land. They want to develop the land. Uh, sometimes they want to operate it for themselves or otherwise, or they want to turn around and sell it. Uh, the last thing they want to do is get, get embroiled in litigation that could have been avoided.
0: So one of the things I'm hearing here, guys, is this is not a cookie cutter process, right? There's a standard out there that says you must check these boxes, but that's not what we want to do, right? We want people, we want attorneys, consultants that are really looking into this stuff, understand what's going on. Do you guys have any real world examples of where this has gone wrong that you can share?
1: Well, I have a a recent example where a client came to me after acquiring title to a property through a sheriff sale, and it was mere days before he was to take title. He retained an environmental consulting firm because in the back of his mind – he He knew he needed a a phase one didn't quite understand what the purpose of it was or or in what context it is effective and so the environmental consultant did the phase one for him he took title to the property and then the environment it all happened very quickly and then the environmental consultant says you should consult with a Environmental attorney, because we we were not certain that you actually have any liability protection here, although you seem to think that maybe you do. And in fact, uh, it was a RICRA facility. And uh, within a month, uh, the client had received a uh, letter from uh, the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, who's re- uh, uh, managing the RICRA program in Indiana, and he is now subject to having to characterize a contamination on site and and remediate it. And the bona fide perspective purchase offense is, is, doesn't provide him any exemption to that.
2: It really does happen that way. Uh, sh- a sheriff sale, just for anybody who might be listening who doesn't know, oftentimes, and I can't speak for every state, oftentimes doesn't provide a whole lot of due diligence at all. It's sort of a take it as is. You've got, you know, 10 days, 30 days to, to get your act together. You put in your bid, you put down a deposit, and if you don't close, you don't. You, your deposits forfeit and you can still walk away, but they don't give you a whole lot of time or in some cases any time or any opportunity to actually do the kind of due diligence you would normally do on a normal transaction. That, I mean, that's been my experience, and I've seen that come up once or twice as well. Um, have I seen yes, I there's one case I can think of in particular. I've seen a couple of these situations where these solo practitioners didn't understand the, the RICRA implications, and that has come up and we have in some cases rescued clients from that before they closed. In some cases, we have come come in after the fact and try to do the best we could to solve the problem. There's one situation I can think of in particular where a, a pair of partners were working on a project and one person relied on the other to get the due diligence done. And the other person, for reasons I don't really know what they were, just completely dropped the ball and didn't get it done. And they closed anyways. Again, it was a cash deal. It was not a finance deal. So there was no lender saying, well, where's your phase one? Where's your phase two? Uh, if they had, they would have discovered that the property was a former foundry property and uh, copper and brass foundry, I believe, and that they had used a significant amount of chlorinated solvents to clean the metals before they did whatever they did with them. And as a result, there was like almost a pond of this stuff sitting under the property. And the problem with chlorinated solvents, as you all know, is that it will volatilize into a gas and rise up through the floor of the building. And bluntly, the state of Michigan said, the health department said, and the city of Detroit health department said, everybody get out of the building. And this person was operating it as a as a tenant space. It was leased. And all of a sudden, all of their income was gone because all their tenants were out of the building. And there were people threatening lawsuits. And I mean, it it got pretty ugly pretty fast. And all of that could have been addressed and most likely avoided had they just done the due diligence properly and they just didn't do it. So yeah, it I've seen it happen. And it's that cash deal that's always, that will come back to bite you more often than not.
3: Those RICRA sites I think are interesting too, at least in Michigan, you know, we get very comfortable with BEAs and part 201. And um, it seems like the the questions of business environmental risk are more intense on RCRA sites if you don't have the protections of the BEA. And if you still have the same issues with hazardous substances that you would maybe on any other site, but maybe less comfort from what Exemptions you can be provided. It would it would seem like it would one would be a lot slower to kind of step into those deals or risk situations than than maybe some other ones.
2: Oh no question about it. And I think you're absolutely right. I think people have gotten very comfortable in Michigan. Uh, you know, you alluded to the BEA. I did too a while ago, just to sort of be clear. In 1995, Michigan amended its circle of counterpart statute to create a new protection from liability called the baseline environmental assessment, the BEA. And it's evolved a little bit over time, but basically it remains effectively the same. You do the phase one, as as we've been talking about, you do a phase two. If you identify contamination, uh, you document the existence of that contamination. You file something with the state of Michigan. You can't make it worse. If you do, you're going to be liable for that exacerbation. If you cause contamination, you're going to be liable for the contamination that you cause. But otherwise. You do have obligations to exercise due care with respect to the contamination, but you aren't obligated to clean it up. You're not going to be liable if the state cleans it up or another party cleans it up. You're you're protected from liability from that. And you're absolutely right, Brett, that we what we have done in Michigan is we've gotten sort of hooked on that BEA program. And it's a great program. It works really well. There have been tens of thousands of properties in Michigan that have, been, have changed hands and have been redeveloped based on that. But- Again, in my, I've had a number of situations where where we've stumbled through this RICRA issue, and literally people have said to me, "But I have a BEA," and as Dave was saying, you know the 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 circle related protection only goes so far. There is a point at which you're not protected from these other laws, and there are a lot of people who just don't understand that because they thought the BEA was a panacea and it solved the problem, and. It's so funny. We've used the word draconian here a number of times. It's one of those words that only lawyers use. And, and it's, it sounds like something out of uh, Game of Thrones or something. Um, but at, and Dave's definition of it was spot on. It's, it's, it's big, it's burdensome, it's hard to get out from under. It's a huge problem. But RICRA is a very draconian statute, even more so than, than Circla now. And it is, it, is a, it is a nasty problem to walk into when you think you're protected because you've got your BEA. You think you've got your get-out-of-jail-free card, and it really isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. It never was, uh, but for non ric related related uh, liabilities, it's much more so a, a get-out-of-jail-free card than, uh, than it is for RICRA. It's not at all for that. It's completely useless.
0: All right. Arthur, Dave, Brett, thank you so much. That's the time we have for today. Uh, We'll be back soon uh, to go on to the next step in due diligence, which would be due care. So thank you all for coming.
2: Thank you, Jason. Thank you very much.
1: You have just listened to the first episode of the Build and Revitalize podcast series on environmental due diligence produced by SME. Jason, Dave, Arthur, and Brett aren't done yet. They'll be back to talk about due care in our next episode. Be sure to subscribe to Build and Revitalize on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you stream. And don't forget to visit www.sme-usa.com backslash podcast to join the conversation, access show notes, and catch up on our previous episodes. While you're at it, connect with
2: SME USA on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube.